Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untie. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest, Jeff Ostro, who's a partner at Simpson Thatcher. Jeff, welcome to the program. Richard, thank you very much for inviting me. So, Jeff, let me start by asking you, uh, you're an IP lawyer. How did you get into IP law to begin with? It's a long and sordid story, actually, <laughs> but I went to law school absolutely certain I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Oh, and I spent my first summer at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And when the summer was over, I called my father and told him I was dropping out of law school. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. And, and I said to myself, I can't do this. I don't want to put people in jail. I didn't think that uh, it would be against my nature to be a prosecutor. And ultimately, I wanted to be a defense lawyer. But I just, I, after spending the summer there, I just couldn't do it. Hmm. So my father took me out for dinner, convinced me to stay in law school. I stayed in law school. I spent my second, my 2L summer at Cahill Gordon in New York. And um, this was 1989. And Cahill's biggest client at the time was Drexel Burnham. Mm -hmm. And some of the older listeners may remember that Drexel went through some troubles. And when I came back to the firm in 1990, Things were different, <laughs> and I got, I got, uh, yeah, I got pulled into a case which came to be known as Frog v. Mouse. Hmm. Cahill was representing the Henson family in a lawsuit against Disney. Oh, interesting. And um, again, for your older listeners, may remember that so this is Jim Henson, the puppeteer. Exactly, right? yeah. Jim Henson, the puppeteer, and 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 may remember that Henson had a letter of intent, or I don't remember exactly what format it was, with Disney to sell the Muppets to Disney. Hmm. And in the middle of the negotiations, he dropped dead unexpectedly. Oh, wow. And Disney um, had, in the meantime, been building theme park rides at what was a relatively new, if I recall right, MGM Studios in Orlando, and when they began negotiations, Disney, Mike Eisner at the time was the CEO, began negotiations with the five Henson kids, things didn't go well. Hmm. And Disney, well, sorry, Henson sued Disney for copyright infringement and trademark infringement in Southern District of New York. And then District Judge Laval got the case, and I was dispatched to Orlando or what was it, Kissimmee, the town where Disney is in, and I stayed in a Disney hotel and took the monorail to work in the morning to do discovery. At Disney. <laughs> at Disney, at the Disney. At, wow. It, um, and uh, it was an interesting experience. It was a very, very interesting experience, and I'm not sure I was at the heart of the IP world at the time, but at least I... <laughs> Got exposure to the IP world at the time. and uh, So how long did you live living at the Disney Hotel? I was there for, I think, two weeks. Wow. I think I, I stayed at... But uh, you didn't get to go on any rides. At night I did, because the Disney police, as I've come to call them, the ones who <laughs> stood over us while we looked at documents, kicked us out of the room um, in the... What is it called? The Contemporary? I forget the name of the hotel that the monorail is attached to. Yeah. At 5 o'clock sharp every day... And then I'd go out into the parks and go on the rides. And <laughs> I remember collecting at the time 
stuffed Muppet toys or whatever they call them that were being sold at the park at the time and without a license. And that ended up being part of the discovery in the case. So anyway, the case ended up settling and I went back to work and Cahill at the time really didn't have an IP practice. So I went and looked for a different firm that had a different focus and ultimately ended up at Simpson with a group that I had joined right before and my first big case was a case called Lotus versus Borland, which ended up at the United States Supreme Court. Mm. And that got me hooked on it. The case ended up in the court during um, what I think was then the biggest recorded snowstorm in the history of Washington, D.C. Hmm. in January of 1996. And Justice Rehnquist, who was then the Chief Justice, was not closing the court for anything. Hmm. And he sent a school bus to the Hay Adams Hotel to pick us up wow. <laughs> in the wow. snow. And the great irony of all of this, I'm actually probably not an irony, the great sort of unknown fact about that argument that day was that there was no one in the audience, right? Because typically the Supreme Court's filled with people, yeah, but right. no, Washington was essentially shut. <laughs> Except you Except, and the- right, and <laughs> the other great fact about the arguments on January eighth, nineteen ninety six, is there were three that day. I recall the first being a railroad argument. The second was the Markman, huh. which is among the most important. Oh right, of course, patent yeah. decisions yeah, exactly. ever. Oh, this was the Markman case. The Markman oh, case that, was that, that was the day. Oh, got yes. it. Yeah, right. And then we were after lunch. Lotus versus Borla was after lunch. So that day, the Supreme Court um, heard arguments in what was then the most important patent case and then the most important copyright case on the same day. And in fact, Justice Rehnquist, if I recall right, mixed them up at some point, calling the Borland case, Lotus Borland case, a patent case. Anyway, I didn't argue the case. Hank Gutman argued the case, but I was there to see it all. Um, Markman got decided by the court, in our case, tied 4-4, so the judgment of the First Circuit was undisturbed as a result of that. And was that, was that the result you wanted? No, no, no. Not, absolutely not the result we wanted. <laughs> okay. we, we, had won, we had won at trial, uh, Judge Keaton in Boston, District of Massachusetts, and wow, I have a lot of really strange stories. And it turns out, and uh, the case was argued twice in front of the First Circuit, the first time, uh, then Judge Breyer was on the panel, yeah. and before the case was decided, if I remember this right, he was elevated to the Supreme Court. The case was then put on for re-argument at the First Circuit, yeah. and when we got to the Supreme Court, he was there. And most people think he was the reason it was 4-4, but he wasn't. He actually heard the case. It was Justice Stevens who yeah. recused himself, and to this day, don't know why. Hmm, interesting. So, um, and since then, I have essentially been doing IP cases, although you haven't asked me a question <laughs> in a while. I've just been on a rant here. So, uh, well, my, next, my next question was now, with that incredible yeah. start, how has your career, how has it evolved and what have you been doing mostly since then or how can you, how, what would you say about that? It's evolved sort of dramatically in that I have developed since then kind of an unusual career for a big firm lawyer. This is more common, of course, in smaller practices, but typically at firms the size of Simpson, the IP folks are either corporate folks or litigators. Mm -hmm. I do both. 
And oh, interesting. I have done both now for 20 years or more, and um, it's been a really interesting experience. I mean, not only did I have now been to the Supreme Court with two of my cases, and I'm 0 for 2. <laughs> um. <laughs> Usually people don't leave. Usually when I say this, they leave that part of it out. So I, I commend you for, for mentioning it, it, that. It's public record. People can go look. <laughs> but they probably wouldn't. I, probably know. not. I, I, I argued neither of them. And I told the client the second time I could have lost too. Um, but uh, so I've, I've been through a lot on the litigation side. And we can talk about that to the extent you wish. But I... I I've spent a lot of my career doing corporate IP work, and frankly, it's been some of the most interesting. Now, when you say corporate IP work, what is tell about that? Because I, I don't, I don't hear that often among my guests. So be sure, good to hear a little bit about that. So, in connection, particularly out here in Silicon Valley, and I've been in California now for 17 years, a lot of the deals we do are related to, to technology or intellectual property, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So, let's say in a mergers and acquisitions context, we may get asked to look at an IP risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. So the Google YouTube deal. Mm -hmm. So when Google bought YouTube in, I think it was 2006, there was obviously some copyright risk associated with that. Mm -hmm. So we represented Google at the deal. I got brought in to look at the risk. Um, So that happens all the time in the mergers and acquisitions context. It also happens all the time in the capital markets context. So, um, for example, I use Google again. We represented the banks in the Google IPO, and you know there were a lot of IP issues, as you can imagine, in the deal. But an odd one that came up in the middle of the deal was uh, that the founders had given an interview—excuse me—an interview to Playboy magazine, which got published. Hmm in the period right before the IPO, and there became an issue about whether or not the article needed to be appended to the S1 and whether or not that would be a copyright issue. And it's a really strange, mm. odd issues. Most of the time, the issues aren't that dramatic. Mm. Most of the time, the issues are more matter-of-fact. But I spend uh, a lot of time looking at IP risk and IP assets mm-hmm. in connection with deals and offerings all the time. That makes sense. Well, tell me, when you look back at your career, are there are there a couple of cases, for example, that really kind of stand out in your mind or trials or interesting clients that, that kind of, you know, really stand out? One of the highlights of my career, and I think if you ask my partners, they would tell you it's probably the case that put me over the edge from you know, to being a marginalist candidate to being a partnership candidate, mm. which was... Um, a case for Seagram um, back in 97 through 99 against a company w- which was then called St. Martin Spirits, which is now called, I believe, the Patron mm. um, Spirits Company, which uh, is now owned primarily by John, by John Paul DeGioia, yeah, who right. I think you have interviewed. I have interviewed him. That's right. And uh, this goes back quite a ways, but... John Paul DeJoria and Martin Crowley, the two founders of Patron Tequila, really did introduce what at the time was called super premium tequila into the United States, Mm. the Patron Mm. brand. And Mm. Seagram was their distributor, and there was a bunch of contracts between them, and one of them um, had a provision that said if Seagram managed to sell a certain number of cases within a certain period of time, they'd have an option to buy 51% of the company. Mm. And they did. Mm. And um, 
there was then an allegation by the St. Martin Spirits folks because they didn't want to sell because they saw the trajectory of the brand that there was a breach of a different contract. Mm. And I spent pretty much two years of my life, I was still in New York at the time, traveling to Jalisco every other week. Mm. Um, and uh, LaGuardia to Dallas, Dallas to Jalisco. I was on the same flight every Monday going down there, every other Monday going down there. And spent two years of my life essentially in Mexico learning about the spirits business, learning about how to taste and smell and look at the chemical composition <laughs> of spirits and uh, learning how to drink spirits. And ultimately, we ended up trying the case um, in my only case, I think, in my entire 27-year career in state court hmm. um, in uh, Los Angeles, 14-week trial in 1999, and we won. And it was a... Uh, a great experience for me. It was my first expert I ever put on the stand. Um, and, I, you know, to this day, I think it's one of the highlights of, of my career. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned that you obviously had this, you know, you've, you've done both corporate yep. and IP litigation. Had, have you ever considered a career, you know, in, as an in-house lawyer, for example, so you could do more of that, for example? Is that, is that something you've ever considered? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I have... I have considered it. I haven't considered it that seriously, but I have considered it. I, nobody's knocking down my door, at least at the moment, offering me a job. <laughs> although I, I, you know, if the right job came along, maybe I'd, I'd have a conversation with somebody. But the the, the sort of alternative um, that I have considered and have done now, I think for five or six years, is I teach, mm. and uh, that keeps me. Um, in a different headspace also. I teach at Berkeley Law School. Well, Jeff, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. If you do happen to land at one of these in-house jobs, you'll have to come back and tell me about it. I definitely will. Thank you, Richard. This is Richard Chu and Jeff Ostro. Thanks.